confident, Holy One, that we cannot be separated from your love. We thank and praise you for your companionship through all of life. In Christ, you become love's embodiment, and you welcome all to follow love's way. So we join the kinship of all called to nurturing love, which lasts when everything else fails. Move us beyond ourselves to care more deeply for the creation entrusted to us. You have bestowed bounty, but we have abused the abundance you pronounced good. Continue to challenge us with opportunities to work for the sustainable good of all the world and all your people. Life unfolds with marvelous surprises and regular delight, but it also brings pain. When we come to regard living as less a blessing than a burden. Yet you have declared that heaven's reign is among us. Open our eyes to see it and our minds to embrace it. You intend good, seek mercy and justice, you offer forgiveness and through Christ show the power of humility. At times we see you most clearly in the beauty of mountain vistas, gurgling brooks and giggling babies, but also in wisdom exercised gently, and then also in brokenness healed, or when anger has separated us from the truth, but reconciliation restores us to community. With those who have gone before, dear God, we ask comfort, comfort in the midst of grief, clarity in the midst of confusion, and always a willingness to listen and to truly hear. As with all called to follow you, we seek you along truthful paths, which lead to freedom and the abundant life that you offer. So we look for heaven's will and its earthly expression through you, whom we live and move and have our being. This we pray in all your holy names.
The witness of scripture comes from the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, the gospel, beginning at nine, verse nine. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as they sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. There is a commercial on television running almost every morning that would have had a favorable hearing in Jesus's hometown, which is the setting for today's story as told by the Gospel of Matthew. The modern day commercial begins. 
with a very stern-looking man conveying a very serious message about taxes. Whatever the content of each particular commercial, the predominant message is that the taxing authorities are to be feared and resented. However, there is hope because one call to this firm will put you in the good hands of those who know how to take on the evil taxing entities. So no doubt, if that commercial had run in Jesus's hometown, the phone lines would have been jammed with calls. In the list of professions in Jesus's day, tax gathering was near the bottom of being honored and near the top of being despised. When Rome moved in to occupy a region, they assessed taxes to fortify the throne and its defense. But they did not bring in people from far away to assess taxes. Instead, they hired a neighbor to work for them. Suddenly, the person with whom you shared recipes and lawn equipment, talked about the weather with and had over for cookouts, that person is now working for the enemy. And as the system was set up, the tax gatherer working for Rome was not paid by Rome, but had to take a little extra from your pocket in order to line his pockets. The animosity for tax gatherers was thicker than any previous friendship had ever been, and why wouldn't it be? The modern day commercial would have had a good market share in Jesus's hometown right up until the ninth chapter when the storyline of hatred for tax gatherers gets interrupted and dramatically so. Jesus been on the road, we remember. He'd been in all kinds of places and he'd done all kinds of things and some of those things had started to raise some eyebrows. He'd forgiven sin which many did not think he had the authority to do. He had been among the Gadarenes and the demons where decent people were rarely seen. He'd been to the edge of survival on a stormy sea with his disciples. He'd been with a centurion whose faith Jesus praised as unlike anyone else's in Israel, which did not set well with pretty much everyone in Israel. He dared to touch a leper. And before all that, he had gotten his ministry rolling with the Sermon on the Mount, which 2,000 years later still has most people baffled most of the time. But, if there was one sure thing, it is that as Jesus walks down Main Street in his hometown, when he meets up with the local tax collector, he will send him on his way, much like he had dispatched those demons into a herd of swine, and off they went to the sea. Oh boy, this is going to be good. <laughs> and it was, but not like anyone thought. So there's Matthew, 
sitting in his booth, something like a customs officer, perhaps, and as people pass by with their catch of the day or their produce or whatever can be excised, Matthew slices off a portion for taxes. Matthew's doing his job, and he's good at it, oppressing his neighbors as Jesus comes along, and he speaks to him words that no one on that day and no one to this day has ever forgotten. Follow me. Wait, what? Uh, Jesus, how about a little do unto others as you would have them do unto you? you? You said that. Or how about a little do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Remember, you, you just said that. Or no one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Remember, Jesus, that was in that sermon. None of that. Just follow me. And without fuss or objection, Matthew gets up from his position and goes with Jesus, which, if nothing else, reminds us that following Jesus most likely means leaving behind something or getting out from behind something or getting on with something new because when Jesus calls and people answer life tends to get reoriented. At some point, Jesus calling all of these unlikely and unlikable people well, it just gets a little bit irritating. If Jesus is from God, then he seems bent on giving God a bad reputation. Jesus is not the commercial most people had in mind for God. Convention exists for good reasons, and Jesus seems to have little regard for most or any of that. Unsettling as his call of Matthew is, the next scene becomes even more troublesome. Ron Ruthruff writes it this way. Jesus sits in the house of Matthew, a tax collector, who has invited his friends to dinner with his new friend, Jesus. Table fellowship in the first century mediated communal relationship. It relationship, it defined who did and did not hold power and social status. Who you ate with said who you were spiritually, socially, economically. This is not so different from many of the tables we sit at today. The Pharisees ask a legitimate question. Jesus knows the holy intent of the law, yet he sits at the table of sinners, especially a tax collector who in his very job description is complicit with and benefits from Roman occupation. Sometimes in the Gospels, Pharisees are too easily villainized. 
And while there might have been times when the Pharisees' questions were trying to trap Jesus, this time their question feels different because they ask the disciples, who are most likely every bit as confused and uncertain as are the Pharisees. Now, we don't know why, but Jesus does not give the disciples a chance to respond. Instead, he answers the question for them. And at one level, Jesus' answer is so obvious that it seems almost ridiculous. People who are well don't need a doctor, only those who are sick. Well, well of course. And had he stopped there, everyone might have been satisfied because it is obvious the people like Matthew and others on the list of sick people, it's obvious they need a physician. But Jesus does not stop there. He goes on to quote from the prophet Hosea by saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call sinners, not the righteous. Now, quoting Hosea would have evoked that Hebrew scripture story in which the prophet Hosea remains faithful to Gomer, even though Gomer has not been faithful to Hosea. God, ever committed to the truth and never saving anyone from their consequences, nonetheless remains searingly faithful and searchingly merciful to Israel. It is a powerful image of God's steadfast mercy to every generation, as the psalmist is resolute in affirming. As God's faithful one, Jesus has come for the sick, not to condone or excuse, but to transform and reform, to restore and return people to who God has made them to be. Jesus, who is divine love, comes close to all who are sick and need a doctor, which is to say Jesus has come to those who are sin sick and sick of sin, to those who are sickened by life at times, to those who are sick to death, which is to say Jesus comes to anyone and everyone in pain, and to anyone and everyone feeling separated or scared or grieving or uncertain or angered, which may well happen to be any of us at any time and all of us from time to time. Because while there are many wonderful things that happen in life, there are also many traumatic things that happen as well. To be sure, we are a community of faith in pain, each of us carrying our particular pain that is simply a part of our individual lives and all of us carrying the broader pain of these days that nevertheless impacts each of us particularly. 
There are moments when this pain is almost all-consuming, and its many understandable depths have all but dominated much of our thinking over the last two weeks. That the vast majority of people would avoid simple conflict, not to mention deep pain, it's always an option. And there are moments when it is a way of surviving and therefore not necessarily bad. But in the long run, avoiding what hurts tends to keep us stuck and afraid. So does getting trapped in our pain which is to say whatever happens in life can stop us dead in our tracks and nothing ever then feels safe and therefore life becomes embittered and withdrawn and it seems as if it's lived in a world of enemies. It's the saddest form of surviving if it becomes the only way of surviving because God never made us simply for surviving. Author Frederick Beekner, who wrote mostly from places of loss and sadness, nevertheless writes of being a good steward of pain. And it is such an intriguing phrase because one seldom thinks of stewarding pain, which is to say attending deeply to it and caring faithfully for it. In his wonderful words that, at least personally, I am only beginning to understand, Beekner writes this, life is hard as well as marvelous. Hard and terrible things happen to us in this world that call us to be strong and brave and wise when it is all we can do just to keep our heads above water. What we have in life is essentially what we are, and what we need is essentially each other. We are never more alive to life than when it hurts, never more aware both of our own powerlessness to save ourselves and of at least the possibility of a power beyond ourselves to save us and to heal us if we can only open ourselves to it. We're never more aware of our need for each other, never more in reach of each other if we can only bring ourselves to reach out and let ourselves be reached. Being a good steward of pain means keeping in touch with pain as well as the joy of what happens. Because at no time more than at a painful time do we live out of the depths of who we are instead of out of the shallows. There's no guarantee that we will find a pearl in the depths, that our pain will have a happy ending, or, any, or even any end at all. But at least we stand a chance of finding in those depths who we most deep, deeply and humanly are and who others are. At least we stand a chance of finding that we need not live alone in our pain. 
but humanness involves joy as well as pain. And it is, of course, that experience too that we are bidden to live out of and to trade with and to meet on the ground of if we are to be good stewards, not just of our most hurtful times, but of our most blessed times as well. Beekner's wisdom, fully appreciated or not. His words do call to mind Matthew's gospel because Jesus says he comes to those sin-sick souls and those sickened by sin, which is to say anyone in pain. Jesus is not aloof, indifferent, uninterested. Instead, he is engaged, engaged to bring healing to the world's pain. I've long since forgotten where I heard this, but someone turned a phrase that seems particularly poignant. I used to think that where Jesus is, there is no pain. But now I understand that where there is pain, there Jesus is. I think Matthew wants us to know that. And all I know to say to that is, thanks be to God.